0: Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. And thanks to everybody who stepped up and made a pledge during our membership campaign last week. We really, really appreciate your interest and attention to our work. And we very, very much appreciate those of you who decided to make a financial contribution to keep this ship afloat. So thanks so much on behalf of everybody here at midday and on behalf of everybody here at WIPR. We begin today with Baltimore State's attorney Ivan Bates. He's a Democrat, and he's been in office for a couple of months after winning a three-way primary and facing no Republican opponent in the general election last November. He's been a vocal advocate for a bill under consideration in the General Assembly that would lengthen sentences for those over the age of 21 who are convicted of carrying a gun without a permit. That position has put him at odds with gun rights activists on the right and criminal justice reform advocates on the left. He's also been working on attracting qualified attorneys to the state's attorney's office and he has appointed several new division heads. He joins me today in Studio A. Mr. State's Attorney, welcome. Uh, Good
1: morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Tom.
0: So, you know, we talked in the campaign about the need uh, to staff up the state's attorney's office and I know that was a, a priority for you. You've only been at it for a couple of months, but how's that effort going?
1: It's going well, really well. You know, a uh, couple things you realize. Um, the office had a, a huge uh, outpouring previously of skilled prosecutors that left. And now, what are we doing to bring them back? We've hired about 18 or 19. Um, lateral hires, people of experience. We've hired a number of young people to come in there. So what I call the Oriel way, training them, We've trained the way we're doing training to make sure that they understand what's going on. And over the next couple of years, they'll be able to try some of these more complicated cases. So I feel good about it. We have a process in place and we headed in the right direction. So 18 or 19, what's the number you think you really need? We'll time? probably need about 60 lawyers in total, so I probably say we still need probably another forty-five, fifty. Some have left, you know. Anytime you have a new administration, some lawyers leave, some you know, and things like that. Like one of the things that we really know we're heading the right direction. Last week we hired two young lawyers who are going to start in the summer. One from LSU and one from Minnesota. Read about what we're doing think they want to be a part of this process, have Baltimore City roots, and want to come back to be part of the great change.
0: So before you get to those extra 40 lawyers that you need, um, are the attorneys in your office just, uh, you know, over Overstretched to me with with uh, caseloads that are are just unmanageable.
1: Well, my homicide division really is. You know, every homicide prosecutor is doing a minimum of twenty. Uh, has a minimum of twenty cases. What does that really mean? Uh, should be ten to twelve cases. It takes about a week to two weeks to try a murder case. So they're in trial at least two, sometimes three weeks in a month and that's absurd because they need to have more time to prepare we're hiring we want to hire more law clerks paralegals we start a new division to take the post-conviction work from the homicide prosecutors so that they can now focus on the trying the case one things we also realize is body camera footage that's so important to making sure that criminal justice is actually done properly and fairly for every 100 officers a division that that's in a city or location you should have one person reviewing body camera footage like for instance Anne Arundel County has 13 and a half people review body camera footage, 875 officers. Baltimore County has 1,100 officers and they have 13 or 14 people review body camera footage. Baltimore City has 2,200 officers and we have four people reviewing body camera footage. My prosecutors are doing too many things to really focus on the cases. So what we're doing is we have now, uh, we've made a request to the governor supplement to go ahead and allow us to hire 23 other individuals so they can review the body camera footage. These aren't lawyer positions. We have Stevenson University, and Arundel County University that do paralegal programs. Those are the people that we want to hire. That way it takes the load off our prosecutors so they can better prepare their cases.
0: Right, so these aren't lawyers, these are people with criminal justice degrees and that kind of thing?
1: Yes, paralegal degrees, and they're individuals that we can train to sit down and look to see where the issues are. I.e., instead of looking at a body camera footage of the officers on the scene for, let's say an hour and a half, now what we're looking at is only 10 or 15 minutes. They can crop that, send it to the prosecutor. The prosecutor, instead of spending 40 to 60 hours per homicide, now they're only spending two to three hours per homicide in terms of reviewing what's already been cropped and put together. And it makes the whole process a lot simpler for my attorneys, but also means that we can get to really focusing on the cases in in hand. Ivan Bates is my guest. He is the Baltimore City State's Attorney. It's Midday. I'm
0: Tom Hall. If you have a comment or a question for our state's attorney, midday at WIPR.org is our email, and you can send us a tweet at midday WIPR. So let's talk, Mr. State's Attorney, about uh, what's called HB 481. It's a bill that you've been uh, a very vocal advocate for. Uh, Tell folks what this bill would do if the General Assembly passes
1: it. Yes, it's uh, in the House 481, the Senate is 889. And basically what it says is that when you look at illegal handgun possession, right now if you're between 18 to 20, you're looking at a maximum penalty of five years and $10,000 fine. However, if you're 21 or above, you're looking at a maximum penalty of three years and $2,500 fine. All this does, it doesn't change the law in any way, shape, form, or fashion, it doesn't do anything to anybody's gun rights or anything like that. It just goes from three to five years. It makes it uniform for everybody across the board. That's really what this law does. And, you know, we think it's common sense. Everyone we've spoken to says it's common sense. Why are we going to punish individuals who are between 18 and 20, but we're going to go ahead and make it not the same punishment for people 21 and above. So that's the one thing we want to do. You know, it also, we think, when you look at the five years, we've looked at studies, we've looked at data, we've looked at a lot of information that says five years is a time period when you're looking at illegal handguns to try to hold individuals accountable. But also, the thing that I think I want to make individuals to understand when you say you're sending an individual to jail for three years, that doesn't mean they're doing three years in jail. In 2016, they had the Justice Reinvestment Act. And what that said is if it's a misdemeanor, they only do 25% of their time. So, three years means eight months in prison. As opposed to five years means 15 months in prison. So, even if you're looking at the worst case scenario with jail, you're only looking at a seven months difference in terms of the prison time. That's enough, we feel, to get an individual's attention, to then work with the community, minds the other programs, parole, probation, to give the wraparound services that so many of these individuals need to try to move them in the right direction. This isn't we're just trying to lock up everybody, but we're trying to get individuals' attention. If our goal is, to, in the end, to have fewer individuals carrying illegal handguns on the streets of Baltimore City, to hopefully save lives—that's really what we're focused on. So there are
0: advocates uh, in the criminal justice reform movement, uh, a, a movement that you yourself have been, you know, affiliated with from time to time, uh, who say that you know there's just loads of data that say. Uh, incarceration, increased incarceration does nothing to deter crime. Uh, and they even can make an argument that it makes communities less safe for a variety of reasons. I mean, the Department of Justice has a report about incarceration not being effective. Uh, Johns Hopkins University a couple of years ago came up with a, a report. Uh, a main thrust of it was that, you know, increased incarceration does not increase public safety. Um, so uh, those folks are saying, and we're going to hear from a couple of uh, them in the second half of the show, are saying that, you know, this is just a, a law that that uh, goes against the data.
1: How do you respond to that? Actually, it goes against their data see they've looked at a lot of the older data let's talk about really what people are saying who in the system and who have really looked at it and have studied it you know i'm talking about a federal government report from june 2022 that talks about sentencing but more importantly let's look at all the academic universities they formed a consortium maryland dc virginia it was led by johns hopkins university in maryland And there were a number of uh, universities, for whatever reason, University of Baltimore wasn't involved. However, the consortium of these universities, 100 or so individuals that studied this really closely, and these were their recommendations, these were the experts in the academic world, said a couple things. One, limiting handgun purchase and manufacture through tax and business structures. Number two, increasing gun tracing and proactive crime prevention technology multiplying and expand gun buyback programs and here this is what I'm talking about make illegal weapon charges our priority in prosecution and sentencing and number five increase evidence-based searches arrest targeted high-risk repeat violent offenders so that's what the consortium is saying I'm not saying this is the only thing we do in terms of the penalty but they're saying that you must have sentences that get individual attention even Johns Hopkins they put together a report and their report is one of the things that we look at, we look at gun violent reduction programs. And one of it says is bring these individuals in, let them know of the harshness of the penalties and the sanctions that they feel. Look, as a criminal defense attorney, I did this a long time. And let me tell you, there's nothing more disheartening than you go do a bail review for an individual that has a handgun and you get this individual out and they're on electronic home detention, you bring them to your office. And as you're talking to them, they get up to leave and their brand new handgun falls out their pocket onto the floor. When are we gonna hold individuals individual accountable to say you could potentially face a significant sentence? All the, well, that, that's an interesting point because are, are folks who
0: are carrying handguns, you know, uh, laser focused and aware of what the penalties are, whether it's three years or five years, is, is there a cognizance of, of of a difference in
1: penalty uh, for various, you know, offenses? There there really is. Every single client I had that knew, hey, Mr. Bates, three years, you know what, that's time served. So just give me the three years. I don't even want to take it to probation. Give me three years time served and I go home. So there really was, you know, my whole thing is this. This is just one of the tools. Excuse excuse me, just so
0: so listeners understand, you're saying it was easier to plea a case if the penalty was
1: three years. Three years. And it would be harder to plea a case if the penalty is five years? Oh, without a doubt. Three years meant local time, time served. Five years meant, you know what, I could maybe go to the Division of Correction on this one, and I don't want to go to the Division of Correction. That was what my clients were saying. And so for me, I understand what they're saying the data is saying but why would a consortium of universities everyone but the University of Baltimore why would they say that these are the things that we need to do you know what else they said they said we need to do additional studies look at the end of the day I don't want to just put people in jail to put people in jail but what we need to do is hold people accountable and we're saying this is a possibility but at the end of the day even if you don't believe that you want to send people to jail why are we saying that it's, this law is fair why is it fair to have three years for 21 above and five years for 18 to 20 if nothing more what i'm saying is hey we can all work together some of what the the, the ju- criminal justice reform advocates saying i agree with a thousand percent wraparound services the opportunities i agree with look i even say once you have this conviction for three years you do what you're supposed to I will bring you back I will then file a motion once you file a motion I will agree that you should receive what's called a probation before judgment so that you can now expunge your record that is one of the things I think is extremely important oftentimes you see young individuals carrying a handgun for various reasons sometimes they want to say safety and I understand that but still my job is to make sure I uphold the law one of the things I always ask individuals As a prosecutor, I've been given one tool to hold people accountable specifically, and that's jail. I didn't make the law. I didn't make those rules. That is the tool that I was given to hold individuals accountable. Is that the most effective way? Sometimes it is the most effective way, and sometimes it's not. I agree. Sometimes it is not. But I think sometimes sitting an individual down just so they understand what's going on. Look, there's nothing wrong with a defense attorney arguing, you know what, this shouldn't be in jail. This should be electronic home detention. Electronic home detention, you still get the same credits as you serve jail in the institution. My whole thing is I need to hold individuals accountable. But also, you're carrying this gun for your own safety. Now, is someone trying to shoot you? They're trying to kill you? Or maybe we sit you down for a few months even if it's electronic home detention and you, you, you think about things, we're now having the education programs. We're now helping you get your GED. That's what we need to go ahead and do. However, what I will tell you, having knocked on 15,000 doors, this is what the individuals living in these depressed neighborhoods have been asking me to do. Not the individuals you see on the street, but the silent majority that's out there in the city. This is what they're asking. When I go to the churches, this is what they ask for. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're sick and tired of being held hostage in their own neighborhoods. They're sick and tired of their loved ones being murdered. You know, as a defense attorney, I paid for many, many a funeral of my clients. I remember one month I had four clients murdered in a 30 day period from gun violence we have to do something different what we've been doing in the past hasn't been working it's not mass incarceration but it's not doing nothing it's smack dab in the middle let's work together
0: as i mentioned in the second half of the show we're going to hear from folks who uh, have a different perspective but um when it comes to where people are incarcerated, whether they're in the city jail or whether they're in a place like Jessup or Hagerstown or someplace outside of Baltimore City when we're talking about defendants from here. Um, there's there's evidence that they would point to that says uh, if you're incarcerated in those kinds of institutions, the recidivism rate is much higher, that if they're here in Baltimore City, they've got people who can visit them easily, that, You know, they stay connected with their families and with their communities, uh, and that that is uh, ultimately a, a better way of incarceration if there has to be incarceration
1: well i hear what they're saying however i let you know that almost every person for the unfortunately that i represented that was incarcerated locally for whatever reason it didn't have the same effect Division of correction is an opportunity and a tool. One of the things that I would ask the governor is let's go ahead and pour more resources in division of correction so these individuals can go ahead and do the things that they need and have the resources that they need. Also, locally, we don't have the programs. You don't have the resources. You're just, quote, unquote, warehousing individuals. And oftentimes these individuals are there. Things are laugh. It's a joke. And that's what I was getting from my clients. Look, let's be honest. Nobody wants to be incarcerated. And when I say it's a laugh and a joke, that's not something funny at all but I do recognize the seriousness of it but an individual that's decided you know what I'm gonna carry this gun I see my friends from school I see my friends from the neighborhood and they're also here it doesn't have the same impact as you know what I'm in this different environment I'm asking for most come the worst case scenario you're looking at five or six seven additional months My problem is this I would rather get you now early, and I'm not asking for the whole five years, but it's it's a tool to say it's a potential. Remember, the report and the research that Johns Hopkins did said, let them know about the harshness of the penalties. The consortium says focus and prioritize guns, prosecution and sentencing. All we're saying is this is a possibility. That's all we're saying. My goal and hope is they will change their mind and not carry these illegal handguns. Let's give them the wraparound services. Let's work with them. Let's give them what they need. But right now, we need to do something because the citizens of Baltimore City are dying at a record rate, and the citizens living in these neighborhoods are just tired of it. They're tired. When are we going to wait, two, three, four years for the wraparound services? We've done that for almost the past eight years, and it hasn't been working the way we need it to. Let's do something else different.
0: Let me uh, change the subject because, as I said, we're going to talk more about this a little bit later in the program. Um, You have made a policy change about uh, prosecution of so-called low-level crimes. Uh, Your predecessor, Marilyn Mosby, uh, during COVID began a a policy of not uh, prosecuting things like prostitution, loitering, even small amounts of drug possession. Uh, How has that policy changed? What's it mean for uh, beat cops on the street and for, uh, for neighborhoods around town?
1: Well, you're right. January 3rd, when I was sworn in, I looked the police commissioner, I said, your officers now have the opportunity to, to prosecute and, and to enforce all the rules. But what does it mean? One, we don't have the prosecutors right away who are prepared or trained to be able to do that. We don't want to overwhelm the system. Number two, this isn't about just making mass arrests and going back to that. Well, we've proposed and we're working with the baltimore police department and other organizations let's do with something different called citation court this way the police officers aren't taken off the corner they are they were not off the post let's give a citation to these individuals they come to court and then we have the resources we're trying to work with Monsey, the mayor's office to direct these individuals when they come to citation court direct them to where they can both best get the wrap-around services for whatever issues they want we're not trying to lock individuals up but you have to be held accountable you know is when i go to community meeting the number one thing that gets me the standing ovation is when we talk about low-level offenses People are sick and tired of not being able to go outside their own door. We want to direct individuals who need drug treatment to drug treatment programs. We want to make sure that individuals, because sex trafficking and sex work look exactly the same, have the officers engage, give them a citation so that we can see what, if any, services they need. If they don't need any services, I'm not trying to regulate what happens between adults consenting adults' bedroom. That's not our goal and should not be the goal of government. But what we need to do is talk about the lording and trespass you know so that they are doing you want to commute you want to loiter and trespass the neighborhood you know what give me 25 hours community service cleaning up that block so that miss johnson sees what's going on so she can feel comfortable and safe walking past you and your group as she goes to church you know that's what it's just about getting individuals to feel comfortable getting them to feel safe and really changing about saying you know what we're going to hold you accountable but we're not doing it with with arrest bracelets with handcuffs. We're not going to put you in the system per se, but what we're going to do is make sure that we're holding you accountable, that we offer you these wraparound services. And that's really what I'm talking about.
0: Let me uh, ask you about one other thing, a couple other things, if we have time in our last few minutes here. Um, there's a law uh, or a piece of uh, proposed legislation making its way through the General Assembly that you oppose, and that is having uh, the Attorney General's office uh, be uh, more involved in uh, police fatality cases and, 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 and having a, a greater prosecutorial role uh, than they've had in the past for things that have traditionally been you know prosecuted by individual jurisdictions. Why do you oppose that?
1: Well look, one of the things I think I probably have more experience doing than most people is understanding prosecution and police is very difficult. It's very uh a different level skill set. My problem is looking at the reports from the attorney general's office in the investigation, they don't necessarily understand that. Um, there's a typical case, Danielle Rochester, where they made a report and said, hey, we could prosecute for manslaughter. But they never looked at the officer's defense. You had two strong defenses that automatically mean you cannot proceed. And my problem is that. It takes a while to really understand that. It takes many, many years. I've been doing almost 20 years. And I really understood how to prosecute police when I represented Sergeant Alicia White, being embedded in the police department, understanding the the way the training was going on, understanding that aspect, holding police accountable. You want to do it in a proper right way. I would love for someone to take that off of my plate, you know, prosecuting a police. However, the v- so voters of Baltimore City elected me to do that. And that's what I will do. But you've, you've
0: already said, as we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation, that you're, you know, very much understaffed. I mean, you've got you've got caseloads that are uh, just unmanageable in a lot of ways.
1: So wouldn't this be a, a big help? Not really. It would be more of a headache. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because at the end of the day, if you do not prosecute police the proper way, then you really rush. You, you you risk doing things to the system and administration of justice, and that's my fear. You know, my PIU Police Investigation Unit. We are staff. We are prosecuting those officers. For me. I would have liked to have seen a compromise with the bill. And, you know, this is Ivan Bates speaking, not the Maryland State's uh, uh, Attorney Association. I would have liked to have seen the prosecutors have the right of first refusal. I would have said, hey, if the state's attorney's office doesn't want to prosecute it, then attorney general, if they want to, they can. That way we could have worked together and they could have understood how to put these cases together. And maybe five, 10, 12 years, however, maybe then they do it. But to I mean, just, if, you, if,
0: if you're going to need to be
1: staffing up and training your folks, can't the AG's office train their folks? Well, it's a, it's a different skill set. It's a lot different skill set. And PIU, everybody in my division has been there five years, almost 10 years. The individual who runs, one, Anthony Brown has never done a criminal matter. And so I'm not holding that against him, but that's just where it is. So you're not getting it from the top. Therefore, you look at the head of the division. Um, And we were able to find out has never done a criminal case ever did civil rights violations, which is a different type of practice, but not criminal. And so that's my only issue, really, is that you have to have the skill set. It's They're very complicated cases, a nuanced. Look, we saw with Freddie Gray. You had six officers. I was one of one. Of the six saying, this isn't the, the, the case. There could be a particular case here, but don't overreach. And I think what we're going to see is the overreaching, in which will have detrimental effects to the criminal justice system. Ivan Bates is the Baltimore City State's Attorney.
0: Good to see you, sir. And uh, we will have you back soon. Yes. Thank you. Good to see you. Coming up, two advocates who say that longer sentences are not the answer to the gun problem. Heather Warnken of the University of Baltimore Center for Criminal Justice Reform and Ray Kelly of the Citizens Policing Project. Join me after a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is eighty-eight one, WYPR.